On the rooftop of her Brooklyn apartment building this past spring, Erica Anderson put on a vintage-style white wedding dress, stood before a circle of her best friends, and committed herself to herself. I choose you today, she said. Later, she tossed the bouquet to her friends and down two shots of whiskey, one for herself and one for herself. She had planned the events for weeks, sending invitations, finding the perfect dress, writing her vows, buying rosé and fresh baguettes and fruit tarts from a French bakery, for the decor an array of shot glasses emblazoned with the words, you and me, in each one a red rose. It wasn't an easy decision, she, she noted on the wedding invitation. I had cold feet for 35 years. But then I decided it was time to settle down, to get myself a whole apartment, to celebrate my 36th birthday by wearing an engagement ring and saying yes to me. I even made a registry because this is America. I'll come back to that in just a moment. But I will come back to that. Uh, let me tell you another story. Uh, we, as a family now, uh, now that we're back to Colorado, see, being in Okinawa on a tropical island, all of our gear was, well, all my gear was like scuba gear and snorkel gear, and then we moved to the Czech Republic and uh, would go skiing down in Austria. We took our kids skiing for the first time, and, and so we had to buy all new gear, and so we had to buy uh, goggles and everything, and uh, as, as we, our kids learned how to ski in Austria, that sounds exotic, but it's much cheaper than Colorado. Um, <laughs> As they learned how to ski there, and uh, we, we would ride the gondola up, and um, we'd obviously have all of our goggles on. And, and my kids made an observation. They said that when you first put on the goggles, you know, everything is yellow. Um, but when you look out in the snow and stuff like that, after a while, you just get used to uh, seeing that, and it actually helps you see better. And so we were just kind of noting that, and... Um, on the last day, so we were there for four or five days, on the last day we're wearing, we're, we're going up the gondola, and my wife looks at me with my goggles on, and she says, can you see out of those? I'm like, what are you talking about? I've been skiing all week. Yeah, but can you, ski, uh, can you see out of those? I'm like, yeah, I can see out of those. She said, give me, let me see them. And she took my goggles, and she began to look into them, and she reached in, and she pulled out this foggy yellow, <laughs> off my microphone, this foggy, that's going to sound good on the podcast. Um, this foggy yellow film, a protective film. I had been skiing all week, not knowing the difference. I mean, and I was like, well, let me see those. And so I, I'm going to mess up my mic again, but I put them on. I was like, oh, my word. I can see, like, shadows and shading, and I can see moguls now. Before, I was just on the ground. I didn't know what happened, and... I, now I just know when I, my doom is coming. But nonetheless, the goggles now served as a limit. But I had, I had skied and had, had lived in such a way that uh, it had just become natural for me. That's just how I had seen the world for all week long skiing. And then I finally saw. Similarly, about maybe 10, 12 years ago, I realized I had been seeing life through a foggy colored lens. I had been seeing my Christian life through a foggy 
lens. See, uh, I became a, a believer when I was about 18 or 19. I'm not quite sure when, but at some point along that time, God, uh, as Colossians tells us, transferred me from the dominion of darkness and brought me into the kingdom of the son he loves. And, and I began this uh, relationship with God, but I began it in the mid-90s. So that was like the height of the seeker-sensitive church movement, which just says basically, hey, we want to reach, and it comes from a good heart, we want to reach as many people as possible with Jesus, and what they want to hear is stories about themselves, and what they want is comfortable chairs, and they don't want to go to a garage-like church, they want, you know, they want a real band up front, and they, uh, and so, um, and we need to have short sermons, and we need to have really, you know, let's, let's have uh, sermons on relationships, all those things, the good, good stuff, um, but it just kind of reinforced this idea over and over again that, you know, ultimately God is really into Mark Oshman, you know, and uh, I'd hear a sermon every week. Man, God is into me. That's pretty cool. Me and God are tight. Uh, he's into me. Uh, oh, great. We're going to sing this song. Great. Like a rose. I'm not going to sing it for you, but like a rose trampled on the ground. You thought of me above all. Isn't that awesome? Except for when the, the lens got clarified for me, I realized, wait a minute, that's a small story. My, my little story is a, a small story, but what I want to convince you of, it, and what I, it took me some time to wrap my heart and life around, and so I don't expect anyone to come, leave here today and say, oh, okay, I'm going to shift radically. It may take some time, but what I want to say is that, that you are not preeminent in God's thoughts, and that's a good thing we'll see for us. God's passion, God's uh, primary concern, and this is a stumbling block for some people, is his fame and his glory. That's, that's what he does everything for. That's what all history is about. That's what I want to show. But again, I realize up front, and, and if you don't know me, that sounds like, well, this, is, uh, this was a nice to go to a church plant one time. Uh, we, no, thank you. We're not coming back. Um, but I, I realize that this can be a stumbling block. Um, for example, um, I, I think about Erica again. At first, when I read that article, I was like, oh, that's dumb. But then I was like, you know what? She's just merely a product of our time. She's breathing the air we're breathing. She's, she's doing what each of us uh, do as well. She's seeking her joy. And she thinks, in this case, her joy is, is committing herself to herself. So she's seeking her joy and her glory. And it's just a product of our time. And if, it, if she thought her joy was in a man, she would have married him. In fact, she Later in the story, she had married a man and she had gotten divorced. And if it was to marry a woman in today's day and age, she would have married her. She would have done whatever she thought would bring her the most joy. And you and I are like that. In fact, we're created to be like that. We are created to, to seek joy and to give glory. You are created to seek joy and to give glory. So everything you do, every decision you make in life is a decision based on your joy. Even if you commit suicide, you're doing it because you think that will bring you a better to a better place. Everything we do is for our joy. And so we, 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 
we follow the culture of the air. We, we do what, what the culture tells us. And in Parker, Colorado, that means uh, the American dream. That, that, that will get you joy. If you get a nice house and you have a nice career and you, you've got a retirement plan, all those things will bring you joy. If you've got the right vacation and the right friends and the right education, all those things will bring you joy. That's the narrative of our culture. And uh, so whatever it is, you will pursue that. But we're also designed to give glory. Of course, we preeminently we like glory for ourselves, but, but that which we enjoy, we will bring glory to. So whatever you enjoy, no one has to tell you, give glory to that. Let me give you an example. So last year, when the Broncos were actually decent, uh, there was a time, close to this time last year, where there were still some questions. There was some question if they were even going to make the playoffs. Peyton Manning had been hurt for a while, and uh, Brock Osler was, was struggling. And, and so we, some friends of ours gave us tickets to the Broncos-San Diego Charger game. And from the very beginning of the game, I started yelling, put in Peyton Manning. I was yelling the whole time. And every time they turned over the ball, the crowd, the chorus began to rise up, put in Peyton Manning. Please, just put in Peyton Manning. Four turnovers later, please. And then at the start of the third quarter, uh, the crowd sees, and, and the announcement comes in, and ladies and gentlemen, entering the game is Peyton Manning, and the crowd erupted, of course, and, and he handed off the ball, and they ran the ball, and they got a touchdown. We were back in the game. And you know what happened when they got a touchdown in that moment? Of course you know what happened. We weren't all like, well, that, well, that was nice. No. We enjoyed it, and we gave glory to it. And no one had to tell us to give glory. We had our hands in the air. Yes, Peyton's back. Oh, my goodness. We're giving high fives to strangers. Did you see that? That's awesome. How we handed off the ball? It was amazing. And they scored a touchdown. Praise and honor and glory go to the Denver Broncos in that moment. What you enjoy, you will glorify. And my big idea and the stumbling block for many is that God is radically committed to his glory. That's what I want to say here as we start off uh, a church plant. And, uh, but I, I want to add a caveat and come back to this at the end. God is passionately uh, committed to his glory, and that is very good news for you and for me this morning. It's the best news. But it doesn't sound like that at first, and it becomes a stumbling block for many. Many in our culture, Oprah Winfrey, when she was 27 years old, she says she was in church and the pastor was talking about the attributes of God and saying, God is like this and like that. She said her heart was singing. And then she said that God, she, she said that he said, that he quoted in Exodus, that God is a jealous God. He's a jealous God. And she said, in that moment, she was done. She was done. How could God be a jealous God? That seems like a, a very small thing. That seems like an egomaniacal thing to do for a God. So she said, I'm out. I, I don't want that. She grew up in a Christian home. She grew up going to church. Similarly, Brad Pitt grew up in a, a Christian home, and he, he went to church, and he said it worked for him for a while, but then he, he struggled with this idea. He said, you have to say to God that he's the best. It seemed to be about ego. And so he walked away from the faith. C.S. Lewis, before he became a Christian, 
in his 20s. He became a Christian at 29. Before he became a Christian, we, he said, when I read this psalms, the Christians believe that the psalms are from God, and, and in the psalms they repeatedly command God's people to praise God. And he said, to me when I read that, it sounded like a vain woman who wants complaint, uh, compliments. Not complaints. A vain woman who wants compliments. So he wrestled with this. And the other problem we have with this idea is that if that's true, that God is radically committed to his glory, then that means he's not radically committed to my glory. And, and we, want a, we want a God radically committed to us. We want a, we want a two-inch pocket God that we can pull out and say, I, I need you here. We want a butler in the sky that can just kind of... Uh, uh, serve us when we need him and, and kind of hang out in the back room when we don't. But if God is committed to his glory, then that means he's not committed to my glory. And so that might be a struggling point for some of us here today. But I want to just, again, say this one thing. The most important truth of the universe is that God is passionately committed to his glory. And that's a very good thing for us. So let's go back to Romans chapter 11. If you have a Bible, maybe you can pull it up on your phone if you don't, or Whatever, I, I will normally, when I'm preaching, will preach just one passage. Today I'm going to do just a few more, and I'll put the extra passages on the screen, uh, just because this, this is the central theme of all of Scripture. And so uh, there is no way I can even scratch the tip of the iceberg on this issue, but when the, when the blinders came off for me, when, I, when the, the shield got pulled back, I began to see this truth throughout all of Scripture, and I began to see the glory of it and the joy of it, and that's my hope for you and for me as we launch out in a church plan in 2017. Romans chapter 11. I wish I could, I wish I could preach all day. I preached through the first 11 chapters of Romans. Perhaps, well, for me, the most profound book of the whole Bible is the book of Romans. And in the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul is, is writing to the Romans and he's showing them how God is both perfectly just and holy and righteousness and, and loving and merciful in Christ and how he could reconcile people who willfully and, and, and strongly uh, went against God and his glory for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, and how could God in his mystery bring those people into the family of God and still be just and still be right and still be holy? And so the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, Paul is unpacking this profound mystery under the power of the Holy Spirit. He's writing this, and as he gets to the end of 11, and before, as he often does in his, his letters, transitions to how does this apply to our life, he just pauses and he, sa he gives what's called a doxology. It's from two words. Doxa means glory, logos, and logos means word. He's giving a glory word now. He's like, I just have to stop. The things that God has revealed to me, the things that God allowed me to just write, we just need to stop and praise God right now for who God is. And so that's what he does. Verse 33. Oh, the depth. Oh, the depth. Let's just stop right there. God is deep. God is far more nuanced, far more uh, than our minds could ever fathom or imagine. In fact, it's going to unpack that a little bit for us. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. God is wealthy. God has no, uh, doesn't bounce any checks. He has no concern. He never wrings his hand. Oh, I don't know if I can make this happen. He speaks and a universe leaps into existence. He speaks and quasars find their existence. If he needed anything, which he doesn't, he would just speak 
speak and it would be there. He is not worried about any resources uh, for anything that he is accomplishing on the planet. He is wealthy and the depth of his wisdom. So, so here's a great thing to say at the beginning of a church plant. No matter how long we gather together, no matter how long we study this word, no matter how much we grow and know, man, we are just going to skim across the surface together. As finite beings with limited minds and limited, limited capacities, there is never going to be a time where we're going to be able to say, hey, go out and explain God to people. Like, it's, it's, we're not going to be able to do that. We can explain what he's revealed about himself, and that's what we're supposed to do, but there is a depth that goes far beyond us. God is not like us and the knowledge of God. He knows all things that have ever happened. He knows all things that are happening, and he's working out all things that will happen for his good purposes and for our joy. Though the depth and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. And then he asks this couple rhetorical questions. It says, for who has known the mind of the Lord? All of us should right now be like, I haven't. No one. Who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Now, sometimes we might be tempted to treat God like this. Like anyone here feel like they need to tell God some information? Like informational prayers here? Like, Bob, God, we just pray for Bobby because he broke his leg really bad and it went in like six places and he, they're going to do a surgery that they've never done here in Parker before God. And, so, and God's like, yeah, I know. Um, I, I created every cell in his body. I'm aware about that. So it's just like, God, I, you know, I have this thing going on in my life and just kind of giving God information. Like we're, we're, and, and then we kind of counsel him. Lord, you kind of need to do this in this moment. And what Paul is saying, man, none of us, None of us can even begin to approach and imagine the depth and the knowledge of God. None of us can be his counselor. None of us, all of us should stop trying to tell God what to do. He's, he was God from eternity past, and he did just fine, and, and he's, he will be God for eternity, for, for eternity, and he'll do just fine. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? See, see religion, a religious system will, will be, I do some things, and then God repays me. If I, if I give money to the church, then God will probably be good to me. If I show up, God, God are you noticing I, I'm showing up? It's not even a church, God. It's a church plant. Do I get extra credit for that? Uh, God, check that box off. Uh, God, can I, can I get some extra credit for that? I remember one time someone came up to me at, uh, in Okinawa, and they are just like, hey. I'm like, hey, I haven't seen you for a while. It's good to see you again. He's like, yeah, I just, you know, God is, was so good to me. You know, I just figured I owed him this. I'm like, well, I'm sure he likes that. Well, we're glad you're here. Uh, verse 36, and then he just kind of summarizes this thing that we get uh, kind of our vision statement out of. For from God and through God and to God are all things. So everything came from God, everything is being sustained by God. Why are you still breathing? Why did, why did you go to bed last night and wake up this morning? Because of the grace of God, the sustaining grace of God. None of us deserve another breath. None of us deserve the, the synapses in our brains to keep firing today. And, and we, we aren't given tomorrow as if we have earned it. It is all being 
from God, sustained by God, and it is ultimately to God. And so he concludes, to him be glory forever. And he says, amen, amen. Amen is not just like an extra throwaway word we throw at the end of our prayers, by the way. It means let it be so, let it be true. Make this happen, God. Amen to you. Be the glory forever and ever and ever. And so the, this truth that God is passionately concerned about, his glory, that we would wrap our lives around this uh, and, and see it in the Bible. That's my hope. See, creation was about the glory of God. Why did God create the universe? He was, he was God before the universe came to existence. He'll be God after the universe comes to its close. Uh, so why did he create it? Well, Psalm 19 tells us, the heavens declare the glory of God. The whole earth pours out speech and proclaims his handiwork. In fact, I have the verse, sorry. I told you I'd give you the verses. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. Creation is about God's glory. So you may not be even, you may not be a believer. You may not believe this is the word of God. That's okay. God just says, go outside on a dark night and look up. And in that moment, you will see the universe praising and glorifying God. Elsewhere, we see that trees glorify God. The oceans glorify God. The, the, all of creation glorifies God. Um, you and I glorify God as his handiwork. It says, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. For everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. I'm only going to share a few more. But if you did a, a word search on glory, you get it over 400 times in the Bible. Isaiah has it like 50 times. The book of Revelation has it like 40 times. Uh, so it is about glory. And the sooner we wrap our lives around that, the better we'll be. God chooses for his glory. Jeremiah 13, 11. It says, I, I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, says the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. God is glorified in all things, even in our rebellion. Do you know God gets glory? In fact, God gets the most glory we'll see at the cross. But even in the Old Testament, we see this. In Exodus chapter 14, as God's people have, have been brought into slavery and are under the yoke of slavery, under Pharaoh's rule, Pharaoh, the, the greatest ruler of the time, everyone knew his name and everyone gave him praise. And God says this about Pharaoh in Exodus 14.4. <coughs> and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. God says, hey, it's okay that Pharaoh is a tyrant. It's okay that Pharaoh is, is, is keeping my people down, because through that sin, I'm going to get glory, because I'm going to show myself as more glorious. And people are going to forget the name of Pharaoh, but they're going to know my name passionately concerned about his glory. Sin, sin is a falling short of, glory, of God's glory. Sin is giving glory to something other than that which is worthy of glory. So that again, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. A couple weeks ago, we celebrated Christmas. Christmas, the incarnation was about the glory of God. Luke chapter 2, the angels see what's happening. God has put on flesh, entered into our time and space, born in a manger and to the shepherds out in the field the angels have a concert and they say glory to God in the highest and on earth 
peace among those whom he has pleased. God gets the glory. We get the peace. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was about the glory of God. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, and we'll come to the table here shortly, and he had a last supper with them, but he starts it in John chapter 17, verse 1. He says, Father, the hour has come. And the hour in John's gospel means his crucifixion, his death. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. The cross is about the glory of God. Paul puts it this way in the book of Philippians. When he says he talks about the death, the humility of Christ, death on the cross. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, he puts it this way. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. It's going to happen. A, t- a day is going to happen when every knee bows to Jesus. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? To the glory of God the Father. Consummation of all of history is about the glory of God. Again, I've already said that the book of Revelation will talk about glory a lot. I'll just give you one verse here. Revelation 4.11, they're, they're singing out, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God alone is worthy question is God a megalomaniac because when we see a celebrity or an athlete or someone else say worship me worship me give me glory if they make a tackle on special teams and they act like they're the best in the world and they're like give me glory we're like that's not right you're doing your job right so how is it that God can be like that well because we rightly know innately know that anyone else Demanding glory is a megalomaniac because they aren't worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. Now God, one of the prerequisites of of being God, and we could read this in Isaiah 43, is that you know that you're God. Okay? In Isaiah it says, I am God, that is my name, and I am the Lord. You know that you're God and that you know your name. That's one of the prerequisites. You don't know that, you're out of the God competition. Thank you very much. But he knows his name. He knows he's God. So he knows he's the all-sustaining one of the universe. He knows he is the source of all joy, hope, and life. He knows he's the most beautiful, awesome, majestic object in all the universe. He knows that he alone is worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. And so if you're God and you're going to put something out for someone to give glory to, what are you going to put out? If you put anything other than the best, then you're not loving. And again, you're out of the God competition because part of being God is that you are loving, the most loving. And so if you say, it's okay, you, you can glory in you know, a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend or this college team or, or that uh, job or all that, you can put all the glory in that, that's okay. Then in that moment, you would not be as loving as, as possible because you'd say, go ahead and give it away to something lesser. More than that, glory is about our joy. We exist for the glory of God and the joy of all people. This is good news. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. So again, I've said, whatever you enjoy, 
you will glorify. So whatever you enjoy, you will glorify. And so God gets glory when we delight in him, when we come to him. And so C.S. Lewis, unlike Oprah and unlike Brad Pitt so far, uh, he, he came to this realization. God demanding our praise is not because he needs praise. By the way, he's God. He needs no praise. He needs nothing. There is no, nothing lacking in his being and his sufficiency. And so why does he always say, praise the Lord, praise the Lord? And C.S. Lewis had this awakening. The, the filter, the lens came off on his eyes. And he said this, and it's a little bit technical. I'll read it. It's on his commentary on the Psalms. He says, my whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable and what we delight to do. What indeed we can't help doing about everything else we value. So he's saying, everything else you value on earth, there is a natural desire to praise it. So... It doesn't matter what it is. If you could be a drug addict and you get some really good drugs, you're going to tell your friends, this is the good stuff. Like, it, it, it helps complete the joy. When you share the joy with others, it completes the joy. And so that's what Lewis is saying. We do that with everything else. A girl does that with her lover. A, a, a person does that with his bank account if he gets his joy out of that. He's like, look at me, or whatever the case may be. But he says, we Everything else, when we praise it, it completes the joy. That's what he says. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is appointed. It is its appointed consummation. So when God says, praise me, he has your joy in mind. He has your deepest joy in mind. And when we sin, it's because we think there's other joy apart from God's provision. And that gets the glory, and God gets robbed of that. And that would send his son to a cross for us. It's for your joy and my joy. We exist for the glory of God and the joy of all people. So if we wrap our lives around this and we say, okay, God, it's about your glory, uh, but we're going to need some joy out of this. It's like, we, we can do that. Um, and, and you begin to see things from a 10,000 years, 50,000 year, 100,000 year perspective, then, then you can start to live like that. But when we see things through the myopic lens of my life and my stress and my, my boss and all these things, then you start to lose sight of joy and you start to feel the weight of the burdens of life come on you. John Newton said it would be like someone who knew they had a great inheritance waiting for them in New York City and on the road there, the carriage breaks down about a mile outside of New York City. Can you imagine what that person would do in that moment? They wouldn't be like, oh, darn it, my carriage broke down. I can't believe it, my carriage broke God, what kind of God are you? They'd be like, I'm going to walk a mile because in New York City, I've got an inheritance that far surpasses this. That's no big deal. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven, if you understand this, connection between joy and glory, you understand what Jesus talks about when he talks about the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven is like a man who finds a treasure buried in a field. When he found it, he buried it. And then what does the text say? It says, in his joy, he went and sold everything he got to buy that field. So in other words, Jesus said, 
Give away everything. Give up your life. Uh, sell yourself out. If you're a poker player, go all in on Jesus because you know what's in that field, right? You know an eternity with Jesus lasts for you. We know that the glory of God will be the central thing of eternity. In fact, if you look at the very last pages of the Bible, in Revelation 19 and 20 and 21, it says that when the new heaven and new earth are created, and the new Jerusalem comes down, it says there's no sun or moon to light them. Why? Because the glory of God lights all of eternity. So it'd be good for us as a church to begin to wrap our minds and our lives around God's glory now so that we're not surprised then when the glory of God is what lights it up. The angels cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Well, I want to just conclude by coming to this table again. This table is about the glory of God. On the one hand, this is food for our body. On the other hand, it's food for our soul. On the night Jesus was betrayed, He gathered His disciples, and you already heard, He said, Father, the hour has come Glorify your son that the son might glorify you. And he gathered the disciples and he took the bread and after giving thanks to the father, he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. As often as you eat of this, do this in remembrance of me. He says, remember that your sin and rebellion required my broken body on the cross. But because I love you and because I'm just, I do it joyfully for you. After the supper, he took the cup, and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant, which is my blood poured out for you for the remission of sins. As often as you drink of this, do this in remembrance of me. This is not any table of any denomination, but it's a table of all who have confessed the Lord as Savior. All who have come to him in faith, by grace through faith, have been transformed by the King, have repented of sin, and said, Jesus, I take all I know of me and give it to you. If you're just here exploring Christianity or you don't know where you stand on that, we would just ask that uh, just between you and God that you would maybe spend some time in prayer and say, Lord, if you're real, would you reveal yourself? But you would refrain from coming to this table because this table represents his body broken for you and his blood shed for you. I would say our tradition, but I guess if it's the first time you meet, you can't really say this, but uh, what we'll do is uh, we have two tables up here. We have a uh, a gluten-free table, because that's, that's the thing these days. And we have uh, a regular table, and uh, you can go ahead and take that. But just between you and your Savior, as, as the music's playing, you can go, come up as a family or individually or however you see fit and come and, and take the bread that is, is broken for you and dip it into the wine that was the blood that was shed for you and commune with your Savior. After everyone has had an opportunity to take of that, We'll sing one last song, a doxology, and then um, we'll invite you to, to just continue the fellowship and join us at the skating rink if you'd like to. But uh, with that, let me close with some prayer, and then you can come up as you see fit. God, we come before you now, and I pray, Lord, that this message would be a, in some way a strand of every message you allow me to ever preach, that you are glorious, and that is very good news to us. And Lord, we see that through your son Jesus on the cross. We see that you took our sin for us. We deserve the death that you took for us in our place. And you poured out your blood for us. 
to the end that you are glorified, that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that you're Lord and the Father will get the glory. So God, I pray that whatever you do in Redemption Parker, that you would do it in such a way that you get much glory. God, we, we repent. Lord, all of us have sought our own glory. All of us have sought joy apart from you. And so we ask, God, wherever that is specific in our lives, Lord, even right now, you would bring a, a spirit of conviction to us so that when we taste of the bread and taste of the wine, it will be a tasteable gospel, good news to us, even as we consume this. So, Lord, thanks for this day. Thanks for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray.